Welcome to the QuackCast number 45. This is not your typical QuackCast. This was originally a lecture I gave to the local skeptics groups on the vaccine pseudo-controversy, and I thought, hey, why not redo it as a QuackCast? So there's going to be a lot of slides with this, as these talks are very slide-oriented, and it would best be viewed either on your computer or on like an iPod Touch where you can follow along with the slides. You can listen to this as an MP3, but some of the material may be missing. But such is life with QuackCast number 45, the vaccine pseudo-controversy. We need to have a little controversy because it feels so empty without me. Thank you, Mr. M. So first off, when you give a medical talk, you always start with the conflicts of interest. As I've said many times, I'm more interested in reading about war. I have an interest in conflicts. But you're supposed to mention your conflicts of interests. None. I've been a practicing infectious disease in one form or another for 24 years. And to date, I have taken one thing from a pharmaceutical rep. And that is a Fleet's enema that the Unison rep sent me on his last day at Good Samaritan Hospital. I display it proudly on my bookshelves in my office. That being said, it's still unused. I don't take pizza, I don't take pens, I don't go to drug company things. So I am as pure as driven snow. That being said, and in fact, one of the more telling arguments used by the anti-vaccine wackaloons is we're all just shills for the big medical industrial complex. And that's a hard one to argue at some level because far too many physicians do dip into the big pharma well, although mostly it's legitimate. Somebody has to pay for these studies and somebody has to run them and who better than qualified physicians. Be that as it may, it is a common argument that because the people who produce the vaccines and give the vaccines have a compelling financial reason to make sure you get vaccinated, that any study they do is therefore invalid. Now, it is true that the funding source does impart some bias into the outcomes of a study, but it's a subtle bias. It does not invalidate the whole trial. It is one of the factors to consider when evaluating a study, who's funding it, and I usually knock off about 10% if it's a pharmaceutical-based study, but that doesn't mean that the whole study is completely wrong. The best example of this was from JAMA in 2003, where they looked at the conclusions and the funding of randomized drug trials. They found that if the trial was supported by a nonprofit, that 16% of the trials recommended the treatment. If it was not reported what the funding was, 30% supported the outcomes. If the trial was supported by both nonprofit and for-profit organizations, they supported the outcome 35% of the time. And if the trial was funded entirely by for-profit organizations, half the time, 51%, the study recommended the drug interaction. They concluded that trials funded by for-profit organizations may be more positive due to biased interpretation of trial results. But note, it doesn't invalidate the trial. And it's why you have to look at the medical studies in their totality. There's good studies, bad studies, funded studies, unfunded studies. But at the end of the day, 
People do have to pay their bills, and you do that in this country by working for money. Take Generation Rescue or Age of Autism, please. But if you go to the Generation Rescue site, they have multiple ads on their front page. Same with Age of Autism. Pushing products that treat kids with autism. I think, therefore, since they appear to be funded by the autism treatment cartels, that any advice they give would therefore be invalidated. Well, that's not true. Their data is invalidated for other reasons, but the funding source is probably a minor or negligible reason why you cannot trust the information from Age of Autism or Generation Rescue. And who would you rather cross? Pfizer or Nana's Cookie Company? Me, I'd be frightened to cross Nana's Cookie Company. Those people got some real power. And those clinicians, they must be making money off of the vaccines they give, right? Well, I'm an adult infectious disease doctor. It's who I treat, not what I act like. And I don't receive dime one from any of the vaccines that I recommend for the elderly. But look at that vaccine schedule. Numerous shots that drag the poor kid into the office for injections. And the doc gets paid for each and every one. He must be making a fortune from these, right? Well, again, not so much. This study was in pediatrics in 2009 and looked at the net financial gain or loss from vaccination in a pediatric medical practice. And they found, quote, more than one half of the respondents broke even or suffered financial losses from vaccinating patients. With greater proportions of Medicaid enrolled patients served, greater financial loss was noted. We conclude that the vaccination portion of the business model for primary care pediatric practices that serve private pay patients results in little or no profit from vaccine delivery. When losses from vaccinating publicly insured children are included, most practices lose money. So your doc is not going to the Bahamas on the money he's making vaccinating your kids. So on to the vaccine themselves. Now, I grew up in medical school and fellowship thinking that vaccines were like clean water and fresh air. Who could possibly be against them? They've had more benefit for the human species than just about anything except perhaps the fresh water and the flush toilet. But still, it turns out there's a significant number of people who are against the vaccine schedule. And for a variety of different, sometimes overlapping reasons. I mean, there's quite a hodgepodge of diseases that we vaccinate for. What good do they do? Well, remember that the decreases that we have seen in infectious diseases are multifactorial. Good nutrition, understanding disease transmission, flush toilets, clean water, decreased crowding have all contributed to the decline in infections. There's nothing quite like knowing how diseases spread to help prevent its, well, spread. Tuberculosis, for example has gone from infecting one in three Europeans in the 1800s to a relatively rare disease today, all without a vaccine. All too often, however, anti-vaccine wackaloons are quite binary in their approach. Either the vaccines have to be credited for all the results of the fact that diseases have disappeared, or they account for none of the effect. In fact, they've had a major impact on disease but it is part of a multi-pronged attack against infectious diseases. And it goes without saying, I guess on a podcast it has to go with saying, 
that not only is the decrease in diseases multifactorial, the type and efficacy of the vaccines are also variable because there are live vaccines and killed vaccines and protein vaccines and carbohydrate vaccines and vaccines that contain adjuvants. And each vaccine has its own efficacy profile and its own side effect profile. The goal, however, of each vaccine is to prime the pump. You give the immune system prior exposure to part or all of a pathogen so that when the patient is exposed in the future to the real deal, it can mount a quick response to the infection other than the usual 10 days or so it takes for the immune system to gear up for a new infection. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or an ounce of perversion is worth a pound of pure. But that says more about me than about vaccines. Part of the problem in the industrialized West is we do not remember the mortality and morbidity of infectious diseases. The third world, however, still does. And in low-income countries, Lower respiratory tract infections, diarrhea, tuberculosis, and malaria are still in the top 10 causes of death. And there are still over 200,000 cases, for example, of measles every year in the world, with thousands of children dying from measles. All these diseases still exist beyond our borders and are but an airplane flight away from being reintroduced into the industrialized West. So what good have these vaccines done for humans. Well, there was a nice article in JAMA that compared historical morbidity and mortality from vaccine-preventable illnesses and showed their benefits. Examples. In the 1820s, there were 21,000 cases of diphtheria with 3,000 deaths. In 2004, zero and zero. Measles would infect 500,000 kids a year in the 50s, with killing 440. Now, 55 cases a year, no deaths. Mumps used to kill 162,000 kids a year in the 60s, with 39 deaths. Now we see 6,000 cases, more on this later, and zero deaths. And on and on. No one sees polio, rubella, tetanus anymore. And smallpox, of course, the great kill-off. We've never seen a case of smallpox since 1976 in the world. It has been eradicated. The morbidity and mortality of all these diseases has vanished to almost nothing. And as an infectious disease doctor, and I go down the list of vaccine-preventable illnesses, I've never seen a case of diphtheria. I've seen one case of measles as a fellow, one case a month last year. I've never seen pertussis, at least whooping cough. I've never seen polio. I've never seen smallpox. I've seen one case of tetanus in a Vietnamese immigrant who never had the primary series. These are diseases that have disappeared, and with it, my income. As the JAMA article has pointed out, there was a greater than 72% decline in cases and a 99% decline in deaths due to diseases prevented by the vaccine schedule, specifically diphtheria, mumps, pertussis, and tetanus. Polio, measles, and rubella have been eliminated in the United States, and smallpox has been eradicated worldwide. Declines were 80% or greater for cases of death for most vaccine-preventable illnesses since 1980, i.e. hepatitis A, hepatitis B, haemophilus influenza, and varicella. Declines in cases and deaths of invasive strep pneumoniae were 34% 
and 25% respectively. Many pediatricians have not seen a case of invasive Haemophilus influenza with all its morbidity and mortality in the last decade. These have been a triumph over infectious diseases. I mean, who would object to vaccines? Well, as long as there have been vaccines, there have been those who've been against them. Like all technologies, vaccines have been improved over time, so we are no longer injecting cowpox into incisions in an attempt to prevent smallpox, which was objected to as soon as smallpox vaccination was started. I'm going to focus primarily on the modern anti-vaccine movement, and unlike many in the movement, I am constrained by actually telling you the truth. Now, I'm going to address here the scientific questions. There is the philosophical political viewpoint that institutions and governments should not and cannot mandate vaccines. I have zero sympathy with that approach. I understand it, but I'm not sympathetic. But that is not a scientific question. That is a political question. The question is going to be, what is the safety and efficacy of the vaccines? Interestingly, controversies about vaccines vary with both time and society. The French have worried about hepatitis B vaccine leading to the development of multiple sclerosis. They don't care as much about the MMR. Nigerian Islamic clerics decided that the polio vaccine was actually a Western plot to sterilize people and spread HIV. Consequently, fewer polio vaccines were given, especially in northern Nigeria, and polio has been resurgent in these countries and has spread to adjacent and other Islamic countries. Nigeria was an interesting case study, as it were. What happened in Nigeria is herd immunity declined as fewer people used the vaccine. Now, the oral polio vaccine gives better immunity, but it is a live vaccine. As such, it can multiply and it can mutate. Now, there's a lot of HIV slash immunodeficiency in Nigeria. So you have a population of kids with bad immunity and you have a population that is not immune. As a result, the live virus vaccine got into people and persisted. And as it persisted because of their bad immunity, it mutated at a rate of about 1% per year and as such was able to perpetuate in the community. As it circulated and mutated, it became somewhat more virulent. As such, a small but significant number of cases of polio are due to a vaccine-derived strain and has accounted for about 300 cases in Nigeria and elsewhere. Of the children who have gotten polio from the vaccine, 40% have never been vaccinated and 87% were under-vaccinated. Receiving the complete polio series not only protects you from wild-type polio, it also protects you from the mutated, slightly more virulent, vaccine-derived polio. So the secret, of course, is to get the vaccine. Now, you need to put the vaccine-derived polio in perspective. In the last decade, 10 billion doses of the oral polio vaccine have been given to over 2 billion children. There have been nine outbreaks of the vaccine-derived polio virus that has resulted in 200-plus polio cases outside of Nigeria. During that period, 33,000 children were paralyzed with wild polio virus, 
while 3.5 million cases of polio were prevented by the vaccine. So the vaccine is still superior to both acquiring polio and acquiring vaccine-derived polio. In the United States, we, well, maybe used to have enough immunity that we have gone over to the killed vaccine, which, while not as good, doesn't have the risk of vaccine-derived polio. However, as the community becomes less vaccinated and people are but an airplane flight away with the real-deal polio, we could see a resurgence in polio again in the United States, in large part due to a decline in herd immunity from people not having their vaccines. So, what are the big three in the United States? Well, one, there's mercury and autism. Two, the MMR and autism. Three, the argument that there are too many too soon. And four, there are the toxins in the vaccines. Always remember, five out of four Americans do not understand math. The big worry in the United States is that the vaccine is causing autism. And the diagnosis of autism spectrum disease is increasing. Why is that? Well, it appears to be mostly due to diagnostic criteria that have been expanded, combined with increased awareness of the disease. But do vaccines cause autism? Well, no. But autism manifests around the time that the vaccines start to be given. So there's an association. An association is not causation. Remember, there are 25,000 heart attacks every week, 19,000 miscarriages every week, and 3,000 severe allergic reactions every week in the United States. So if you get a vaccine, say the flu shot in October, and you also have a heart attack a day later, you're likely to blame the vaccine. If you're giving out a lot of Gardasil shots and one of the kids comes down with anaphylaxis in 24 hours after the vaccine, you are going to blame the vaccine. And not unreasonably. Whenever a large number of children are vaccinated, by random chance alone, not an insignificant number of instances of children will have what appears to be an associated side effect. But the question is, is it causative? It is only at the population level where no higher incidence of disease is observed with vaccination and without would it be possible to see whether or not the correlation between the vaccine and the disease is perhaps causative. And fortunately or unfortunately, whenever we've looked at populations of children who've had the vaccine, there does not appear to be an increased risk for developing autism. And this is true for all vaccines. Is the side effects you're seeing greater than the rates that you would expect to see at baseline? Be it Guillain-Barre with the flu vaccine, if you like my French accent, or anaphylaxis and the HPV vaccine. Now, I know that one good story is worth far more than all the studies quoted in this podcast. When a mom kid has vaccines and then is noted to have autism, she's going to blame the vaccines. And I'll never be able to argue her out of it. And I understand that need to find a correlation and a causality for a horrible disease in your kids. Someday, hopefully, we will know what causes autism and vaccines will be exonerated when there's another answer. But as long as there's doubt as to the etiology, people want answers and it's going to be the vaccines for some. However, as I've said many times, 
The plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not data. And the data, as we shall see, does not support autism and vaccines. Now it's about mercury. Well, mercury is a neurotoxin, but that's elemental mercury. The Mad Hatter became that way because of mercury used in the production of hats. When I was a kid, I used to break open the mercury thermometer, and my brother and I would play with the mercury, and we never suffered any harm. Well, you might argue with that. Now, chlorine, as a gas, killed thousands in World War I. Sodium chloride, table salt, is mostly harmless, unless you're hit upside the head with a jar of Morton's. I don't know about you, but when I look up sodium in the dictionary, I go to N. When I look up mercury in the dictionary, I go to H. There's something wrong with my brain, perhaps. Maybe from the mercury exposure, but I think of the elements by their chemical symbols, not by their actual spelling. Now, the mercury in vaccines is and was thimerosal, and it was used as a preservative. It has been removed from virtually all the vaccines, except for predominantly multi-dose vials of flu vaccine, since about the year 2000. It's always good to keep things in perspective. How much mercury is in a 6-ounce chunk of tuna? The mercury ingested in a 6-ounce amount of tuna is 8,959 micrograms of mercury. Before their reductions in the vaccine, the maximum cumulative exposure to mercury due to childhood vaccinations was around 187.5 micrograms of ethyl mercury. What's found in tuna is methyl mercury. Methyl mercury is different than ethyl mercury. And if you're not very good at grams, and you probably aren't unless you are a cocaine user, a dollar bill weighs about a gram. So a milligram would be one thousandth of a dollar bill, and a microgram would be a millionth of a dollar bill. That's not a lot of mercury. Unless, of course, you're a homeopath, in which case, the less mercury you get, the more toxic it becomes. So mercury was removed not because there was scientific evidence that it was harmful, but it was removed because people weren't getting the vaccines because they were afeard of it. It did jack up the cost of the vaccines because they're no longer in multi-dose vials. But as such, kids since about 1999 have been exposed to less thimerosal. And so the only thimerosal they might possibly be exposed to is in the flu vaccine and in some of the tetanus vaccines. So you'd expect if all the thimerosal was removed from the vaccine, then the incidence of autism should start to decline, right? Well, that's not what has happened. In the study that looked at this issue, they found that despite the removal of thimerosal from the vaccines, that the rates of the diagnosis of autism continue to increase. So despite removal of mercury, it's done nothing to cause the rate of diagnosis of autism to decline. And that's not the only study. There have been 10 other epidemiologic studies that have looked aggressively for a relationship between thimerosal and autism, and none have been found. Mercury, as a cause of autism, is a non-starter. However, even though mercury is not a cause of autism, nor is aluminum for that matter, 
that does not stop people from measuring the levels in their children's urine and in their children's hair. And they find in these unsubstantiated laboratories increased levels of aluminum and mercury. So what the kids then get is intravenous and sometimes oral therapies to bind up these toxins so that they are excreted. Not only is this not going to work, it is potentially dangerous. The kids get chelation therapy. They get injected with intravenous EDTA, which not only binds mercury and aluminum, but it also binds calcium. And there's at least one pediatric fatality in a child who was getting EDTA chelation therapy for their autism. As the article says, chelation therapy in autistic children has not been validated and can have tragic consequences. Okay, it's not mercury. Maybe it's the MMR. This was made famous by Dr. Mengele. Well, really, it's not fair to compare him to a Nazi concentration camp doctor. Let's just stick with the facts and not the character assassinations. Shall I? Yes, I shall. So in 1998, The Lancet published an article by Dr. Andrew Wakefield entitled Iliolymphoid Nodular Hypoplasia, Nonspecific Colitis, and Pervasive Developmental Disorder in Children. This study was a fairly minor molehill of a study. He had 12 children with autism, and he did extensive evaluations on them, including colonoscopies, which they didn't need, and lumbar punctures, which they didn't need, and found, and here I quote the Lancet article, We have identified a chronic enterocolitis in children that may be related to neuropsychiatric dysfunction. In most cases, onset of symptoms was after measles, mumps, and rubella immunization. Further investigations are needed to examine this syndrome and its possible relation to the vaccine. That's a pretty circumspect, cautious result. He said, quote, We did not prove an association between measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine in the syndrome described. Virological studies are underway that may help resolve this issue, end quote. And, quote, if there is a causal link between measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine in the syndrome, a rising incidence might be anticipated after the introduction of this vaccine in the UK in 1988. Published evidence is inadequate to show whether there is a change in the incidence or a link with measles, mumps, or rubella vaccine. Pretty cautious, huh? He was less circumspect with the press, stating that vaccines cause the autism and that rather than get one MMR shot, kids should get three separate shot. A conclusion that in no way was supported by the paper he published. Subsequently, all sorts of curious things were discovered about Dr. Wakefield. Two years before the paper was published, he was hired by a lawyer to perform research to prove a link between autism and vaccines. And he was paid almost 500,000 pounds. Now, I know in American money, that's like $1.47, but still. This was never mentioned in the Lancet articles where you always have to mention your conflicts of interest. It also was not noted that he received a patent for a single-dose measles vaccine nine months before the press conference calling for an end to the MMR and a use of a single-dose measles vaccine. 
Subsequently, people looked back on the records of the children that he did his study on and found that he altered the histories to support his contention. I think we call that lying. And it was also noted that these kids obtained both spinal taps and colonoscopies without going through the Institutional Review Board. He basically experimented on kids without proper oversight. Because he lied and because he was unethical, the paper in the Lancet was retracted and his license to practice medicine in not-so-great Britain has been yanked. The curiosity is, despite the proof of the above sentences, they are not assertions he did all those things and has suffered the consequences. There are them what still think he is a hero. And, for example, David Kirby in the Huffington Post said, It was a public lynching and shaming of Dr. Wakefield is unwarranted and overwrought and that history will ultimately judge who was right and who was wrong about proposing a possible association between vaccination and autism. A public lynching of a guy who took hundreds of thousands of pounds, it's only pounds, of course, lied about his study and was unethical. Boggles the mind. Well, maybe he was a lying weasel, but maybe he was right. Maybe there's a nugget of truth. Now, what happens when people publish a study is people try and confirm or deny that study. There have been several studies that have asked the same questions and received answers that contradicted Wakeling's findings. They have found that bowel disease is not more common in autistics and that the iliolymphonodular hypoplasia was not characteristic of children with autism. They found that the MMR and autism are not correlated. And they cannot find measles RNA in autistics at any higher rates than non-autistic children. A lot of time and money was wasted because Dr. Wakefield lied. You know, the motto was, no one died when Clinton lied. Well, as we shall see, one kid has died in England from measles. So at least one kid's died because Wakefield lied. The most interesting article on this topic came out in Pediatric Infectious Disease in May of 2010 out of Poland. And they looked at kids who either got the regular vaccine series, no vaccine, or a single dose of the measles vaccine. And they found that the MMR was protective against the development of autism. Quote, For children vaccinated before diagnosis, autism risk was lower in children vaccinated with the MMR than in non-vaccinated, as well as to vaccinated with single measles vaccine. The risk for vaccinated versus non-vaccinated was 0.28. The risk connected with being vaccinated before onset of the first symptoms was significantly lower for the MMR versus single vaccine. That's kind of curious that actually the MMR, at least in Poland, was protective against developing autism. Now, there are a lot of potential confounding variables in this study, and it may turn out to be nothing but noise. But remember that measles, mumps, and rubella are all neurotropic viruses. They like to go to the brain. And there's been this long debate about whether or not some psychiatric illnesses have an infectious etiology or an infectious trigger. The prime one example of this is schizophrenia, where there's seasonal variation in the onset of schizophrenia. And I've seen some patients over the years who've had a schizophrenic break and for one reason or another had a spinal tap that showed a meningitis. Whether or not 
these diseases are caused by viruses or it's an epiphenomenon of viral infections, I do not know. But it is an interesting curiosity that vaccines against neurotropic viruses actually decrease the odds of developing autism. I bet it doesn't pan out, but it's still curious. Of course, actions have consequences, and there was a big brouhaha. <laughs> uh, thank you, Duck's Breath Mystery Theater. But there's a big brouhaha about the MNR in not-so-great Britain, and vaccine rates went from 95% to 80%, and measles and mumps took off. There were several thousand cases of measles with, quote, only, unquote, one death. I always love it when people say only one kid died of measles. That's one kid too many. Thanks to a renewed emphasis on vaccines, measles is again coming under control in the United Kingdom, which is soon to be bought by Disney and will be the United Magic Kingdom. But there are still more cases than have occurred in over 30 years in that country. The second M of the MMR stands for mumps, and England has had over 7,500 cases of mumps, or the mumps. Is it mumps or the mumps? Whatever. And there's currently an outbreak of the mumps in the east coast of the United States that was traced to an unvaccinated child who went to England and then brought home, besides fabulous memories of his time in London, but the mumps. And there have now been over 1,500 cases of the mumps, most of it spread in the religious community that doesn't vaccinate, but it has been spread as well into the local non-religious, well, maybe they're religious, but non-vaccinated communities of New England. What's going on to in the United States as a result of this brouhaha? Well, you know, you need clusters of non-immune people for infections to perpetuate. Herd immunity has to fall. And it depends on the organism, but once immunity rates fall below about 90%, often 95%, many vaccine-preventable illnesses can spread. I live, of course, in the great state of Oregon. And Jackson County in southern Oregon is one of the most unvaccinated counties in the United States, with a 15% unvaccinated rate. In Ashland, Oregon, home of the Shakespearean Festival, up to a quarter of children are estimated to be either not completely or totally unvaccinated. Also of interest, Ashland, with a vaccine refusal rate of 25%, has 1.1% of their students with the educational diagnosis of autism, the highest in Jackson County, and the highest in the state. So the place that has the least amount of vaccines also has the most amount of autism. Go figure. My only advice is that when you go to the Shakespearean Festival in beautiful Ashland, which is a wonderful thing to do, don't inhale. In the United States, however, most of the unvaccinated children are clustered in upper-income private schools. There are some in California where the rates are 80 and 90 percent. So these are prime pools of unvaccinated children to get a good outbreak of measles, mumps, rubella started again. So maybe these diseases that I've never seen clinically, I shall get an opportunity to take care of. Okay, it's not the mercury, it's not the aluminum, or for our folks in Great Britain, the aluminium. It's not the MMR. It's too many vaccines, too close together. 
Look at these poor kids. They get five attenuated or altered viruses and 21 different antigens by the age six. A couple other vaccines are added from age seven to 18, but by then it's too late. Maybe it would be easier on the child to give fewer vaccines less often. And so there are alternative vaccination schedules. The most popular, perhaps, by Dr. Bob Sears, who likes to be called Dr. Bob. Now, I just want you to know, you need to mistrust anybody who calls themselves Dr. Insert your first name here. Don't trust Dr. Laura. Don't trust Dr. Bob. Don't trust Dr. Phil. Most people just call me Mark. Some people call me Dr. Chrislop. But usually at work, I'm only known by my first name. Though occasionally they say, hey, Tubby. Is that really a lot? Well, let's look at the real world. As I've said many times, there are 10 to 100 times more bacteria in you and on you than you are cells that make up you. That's 100 billion bacteria representing several thousand species, most of which are acquired in the first year of your life and are kept at bay by the Hey, immune system. I once counted up all the potential common pathogens in the infectious disease textbook, and I found about 1,374 potential viral, bacterial, fungal, parasitical infections that the average person could be exposed to in a lifetime. And I did that by counting salmonella only once. That's in contrast to a vaccine schedule with five live attenuated, or altered organisms, and 21 different antigens by age 6. The number of antigens you're exposed to in the vaccine schedule is minuscule compared to the amount of organisms and infections that you are exposed to as part of life. It is nothing. To coin a unique phrase, it is a drop in the bucket. That phrase is trademarked by Mark Crystal. Again, let's compare this to the real world. It's estimated that the individual person has somewhere between a million and a hundred million unique antibodies, and that we have the potential to make 10 billion antibodies to germs and other foreign materials. So most of us carry around somewhere between one and a hundred million different antibodies. Let's say for the sake of argument that you get most of your antigen exposure by age 18. In other words, you make a million antibodies by age 18. To do that, you have to make 152 antibodies a day. Now, I cannot find how many antigens the average human is made by 18, but one antibody a day would make for 2,160 antibodies by age 6, or 6570 by age 18. We are exposed to an enormous number of antigens every day of our lives compared to what we get by way of the vaccine schedule. If a child were to make 152 antibodies a day, which is still a conservative estimate, then by age 6, the amount seen in the vaccine would account for 0.004% of the antigen exposure to that child. To use my new and clever phrase, it's just a drop in the bucket. God, what a metaphor. You have to give me a dime every time you say it's a drop in the bucket. And bear in mind that a lot of the vaccine schedule in the third world is the infection schedule. It's when kids get the diseases. So the only thing you're going to do by altering the vaccine schedule is increase the chance that the children will get infections. 
And does the alternative schedule prevent autism? Well, no. This study was not quite answered by a study in pediatrics called On-Time Vaccine Receipt in the First Year Does Not Adversely Affect Neuropsychologic Outcomes. What did they do in this study? They looked at a bunch of kids who either got the usual vaccine schedule or a delayed vaccine or non-receipt of vaccine. And after 7 to 10 years, looked at their brain function with 42 neuropsychological outcomes. And they found that, well, timely vaccination was associated with better performance on 12 outcomes in univariate testing and remained associated with better performance for two outcomes in multivariate analysis. In other words, the vaccine, maybe, was protective against having a decline in neuropsychological outcomes at a later date. And if you had the delayed vaccine schedule or an alternative vaccine schedule, you were more likely to do poorly on these neuropsychological outcomes. Now, again, this could all be background noise, and it may not pan out in future trials. If you do 42 outcomes, you're likely to find a handful that may be statistically significant, but are not clinically relevant. Still, you got to admit, it's kind of curious that we now have two studies that show that timely acquisition of vaccines, first the MMR in Poland, now this study, or associated with better neuropsychological outcomes than those that don't get the vaccine. Given these are neurotropic viruses, maybe this will pan out. I doubt it. I mean, it's not too many too soon. It's the toxins. The vaccines are not safe. They are filled with toxins. Well, is that true? You can easily find websites that will list all the toxins that are found in vaccines. Now, that's true. They are. But they are found at minuscule amounts. Now, I believe in a dose-response effect for drugs that a little bit causes big amounts of reaction. And once you reach a certain threshold, many drugs cause no effect. In none of these vaccines is there a sufficiency of toxins to worry my favorite is formaldehyde, which was used on my cadavers in med school, amongst other things, to preserve them. And it always guaranteed me a bus seat on the ride home, because no one wants to sit next to you when you smell like a gross anatomy lab. But formaldehyde is a toxin at high concentrations. And it causes everything from pulmonary erosion to eczema to short attention span, to schizophrenic-type reactions, to tearing, to gastritis. It goes on and on and on. You can find 40, 50 side effects that are associated with formaldehyde. And virtually every vaccine has formaldehyde in it. How much formaldehyde? Less than 0.1 milligrams. Now remember, a dollar bill weighs about a gram. So a milligram would be a thousandth of that and 0.1 milligrams would be a tenth of that. Not a lot of formaldehyde. The hepatitis B vaccine has 0.0002 milligrams of formaldehyde in it. How does that compare again with the real world? Now, formaldehyde is part of normal human metabolism. We manufacture it, inhale it, eat it every day. 
You make 1.5 ounces of formaldehyde each and every day. That's one and a half shots of whiskey. And formaldehyde is normally found in human blood at about one to two parts per million, more than is found in vaccines. So by the principles of chemistry, if you do inject a formaldehyde-containing vaccine into a muscle, the concentration gradient that's there would ensure that more formaldehyde would go from the blood into the shot site than should go from the shot site into the blood. And you can go through a similar evaluation with all the other toxins found in vaccines. Over-the-top worries about potential side effects that are based on consuming grams and grams of the stuff, not milligrams of the stuff. And don't forget, every vaccine contains dihydrogen monoxide, which kills an estimated nine people a day in the United States. And I like the fact the CDC calls it unintentional drowning. I wonder how many intentional drownings we have every year in the U.S. So, green are vaccines. The only green we're going to see is the grass that grows on the graves of children who die of preventable illnesses who did not get their vaccines. Or maybe not. The tears of the parents, the family, and the friends are probably too salty to support the growth of grass on their graves. The benefit of vaccines is enormous, and the risks are small. Anybody listen to this podcast, drive a car, 40,000 people, maybe 30,000, die every year in the United States from car accidents. You own a gun, 30,000 die of handguns. When it comes to cars, however, remember that 25 people, more or less, die every year from airbags. Yet, I wouldn't buy a car that wouldn't have airbags because it saves far more people than they kill. How about vaccines? How many people have died of vaccines last year? Let's see. Hmm. None. How many people haven't gotten sick from vaccine-related illnesses? Innumerable. Mostly because I can't count past 12 because I run out of fingers. And how many people have gotten autism from vaccines? Zero, to judge from the data. How many have had other side effects? Virtually zero outside of a sore arm. Vaccines, along with flush toilets and clean water, are one of the great boons that we've had in science. I always like to point out that 25 people are trampled to death by cattle every year in the United States. You're probably at more risk owning a cow than you are from getting a vaccine. So that ends this rapid tour of the vaccine pseudo-controversy. There's a lot of detail I left out by the fact that I'm limited by time. There is much to be found on this topic over at Science-Based Medicine, where you can find essays by me and others on vaccines and at least what I would say is the truth about vaccines. My website, of course, is moremark.squarespace.com, and I will end this lecture now. Thank you. So that ends QuackCast 45, plus or minus one. Uh, I know the counting of the QuackCasts is all messed up, and I'll probably never get around to fixing it. That's just the kind of lazy-ass bastard I am. As always, participate in the Mark Crystal Multimedia Empire. There's my Gavito Puss podcast. There's my PussCast podcast. There's Science-Based Medicine, and then there's my Infectious Disease blog over at Medscape, because the world does need more Mark Chrislip. But most importantly, 
feed my ravenous ego and write me a glowing review on iTunes. And I'll see you for QuackCast number 46, plus or minus one, at some time in the distant future, where the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and every child has completed the vaccine schedule. Talk to you later. Bye.